Thank you, Hugh. And thank you so much, Simon, for that um, quite uh, shocking, stunning uh, recitation of Jesus' words. Uh, it's a real pleasure, actually, to be back here just on an uh, indulgent personal note. This was actually the first lecture theatre I ever had a lecture in here at Sydney University. Uh, I came here in uh, 2003. Uh, gosh, that's a long time ago. Um, it didn't have the awesome new kind of... Uh, it didn't look anything near as good as this back then, but it's wonderful to be back here. Um, I was on the train on Monday, and that in itself is not entirely remarkable. In fact, most of the trip was entirely unremarkable, but there was this kid, and he was, I don't know, whether he was 16 or 17, he had the rat's tail, and he had that really obnoxious habit that uh, some members of our society have of forgetting his iPod earphones and coming onto the train with his uh, phone speakerphone playing all sorts of horrific hits from the late 90s. It was, it was annoying. Okay? The carriage was united in their frustration with this guy. And one uh, gentleman, kind of, if you picture the kind of bald, suited, very serious, reading the business section of the paper or possibly the financial review, was getting more and more frustrated. Now, I, could, I was sitting in the, the seat facing backwards, so I could see this whole drama on, unfold. He turns around and he says, Look, son, have some consideration for the rights of your fellow passengers. And we're all going, yeah. <laughs> And so he made a kind of token attempt. He turned down his music a little bit, perhaps. But still the music kept on. Another lady gets up, this time kind of your middle-aged mother kind of type, and she walked past and she said, you're a very rude boy, <laughs> and left the train carriage. This did not faze him. He kept on going with this really, really annoying music until eventually... The elderly man stood up and was like, we're in for something here, real, real talking to. And this dignified speaker on behalf of the rights of decent-minded people everywhere who don't play their music loud on trains and respect the rights of passengers got up and thumped the kid. <laughs> I'm serious. He flat-out assaulted him in full view of everybody on the train. And suddenly the mood totally reversed. We were annoyed at this guy. But to get up in the name of standing up for the rights of decent commuters everywhere and thump a child, that's not cool. That's not cool. And so a, a couple of us thought, well, we need to intervene here. Uh, my good friend Andrew Robinson went and got the guard. He did the right thing there. And a couple of us kind of walked up just to kind of well, one commuter, I wasn't brave, of course not, but one of the other kind of guys, on the, he actually grabbed the, the gentleman, who this time had just totally lost his financial review composure and was ripped into this kid who was so shocked, or just so kind of afraid he wasn't even punching back. Anyway, they managed to separate them, and finally the guard arrived. Finally, justice is here. And the guard promptly kicked the kid off the train and the commuter who was holding back the businessman. The businessman went back to his financial review as if nothing had happened, took up the financial review, and sat there coolly as a whole new bunch of passengers got on the train. And I was just trying to work out the whole time as I eyed him down why that infuriated me. 
And I think it's because there was a way big gap between who he was making himself out to be and what his actions had demonstrated he was capable of. I just wanted the carriage to know that this guy sitting next to them was not who he was making out to be. I think that's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, I think, is a gap between who you make yourself out to be, who you say you are, or even who you convince yourself you are, and what your actions demonstrate about who you really are. And I tell you what, I think everybody hates hypocrisy. You know, I think religious hypocrisy is probably the worst type, though, isn't it? Uh, there's, there's a song by... Um, do you know the band Death Cab for Cutie? Right, and I'm showing my kind of out-of-the-uni cool subculture here. I, 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 uh, there's six album plans. I have this song called I'll Follow You Into the Dark. And one of the most kind of gut-wrenching verses goes like this. In Catholic... I'm not going to sing it. It's okay. In Catholic school... As vicious as Roman rule, I had my knuckles bruised by a lady in black. And I held my tongue as she said, Son, fear is the heart of love. So I never went back. You know, the uh, thinking, uh, I had my first history lecture in here actually, when I'm studying the, the 20th century. It reminded, reminded me um, of some of the examples of hypocrisy in our history, and there's particularly the shameful history of religious people. Um, there was this guy, uh, a couple of guys actually, whose, um, well, their names would be unremarkable as merely, sadly, more examples of people who went along in the Nazi regime. People like Eric Koch and Ludwig uh, Mueller, their names would be nothing, really, except that Eric Koch was one of the few Nazis who actually professed open Christian belief and yet was happy to be a key member in the Nazi regime. And Mueller, he was a theologian. Now, at least average Germans didn't necessarily boast that they were close to God. They were acting somehow on behalf of God. But Mueller, he did. And I think rightly, history judges him more harshly for that. Is it Dante's eighth level of hell that is reserved for bishops and popes? The level of hell in that Italian poet's poem called Fraud. Everyone hates hypocrisy, but I think religious hypocrisy is by far the most shocking and disappointing, isn't it? Religious hypocrisy. And my thought for today from this passage as we look at Matthew 23 is quite simple. Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. I think, than we do. Jesus hates religious hypocrisy, hypocritical religion, for many of the same reasons we do, but also, I think, for better reasons than we do. So, Jesus hates religious hypocrisy. Now, we have to say something about hate here. Um, normally, when we think of hate, it's this kind of prejudiced, violence, Ugly, ugly emotion. Something that normally we, we try to get rid of, don't we? We don't like hate. We have hate speech, uh, which we rightly want to oppose. But here, I think what we mean by hate, at least what I mean by hate here, is that Jesus 
powerfully and passionately denounces the hypocrisy he sees in religion. And essentially because at the first point it's hypocritical. Look what he says in, in, in chapter 23, verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds and the disciples and said this, The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people of his day, the prime examples of religion around him, they are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they do, do whatever they tell you, and observe it. But do not do what they do. Because, and here's the heart of hypocrisy, they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. You see, there is a glaring gap between what these people say and what they present themselves as in society and what they really are deep down. They're hypocrites. And time after time, Jesus denounces this hypocrisy. You probably don't have time to go through all the, um, the six woes. You might have, uh, so, sorry, the seven woes. You might have eight in, in your Bibles. Different traditions have uh, got an extra one in there at chapter, uh, verse 14. But I want to look at a couple of these woes, which I kind of think are representative of the things he's talking about. Woe number six, let's see if I can find it. Woe number six is in verse 27. But pull it up. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and every impurity. Right, the idea is that what's on the outside doesn't match what's in the inside. There's a glaring gap between what these people present to the world and what they really are on the inside. Now, as, as far as we can tell, the, the practice of whitewashing tombs was basically a, an emergency marker. Don't go near this thing. Observant Jews aren't meant to go near a dead body or they become unclean for ritual purposes. So they... Uh, if there were pilgrims coming into town, which there often were, people who weren't from town, didn't know where Auntie Mary was buried, they would make sure they whitewashed the tombs, not to say this is a pretty place to hang out, but to say this is not just a rock, there is a dead body in here, do not go there. Because there's something on the inside which is unclean, which you should not come into contact with. Uh, which reminds me, just on a tangent, about... Uh, I've got this friend Dave who told me about some country boys who had uh, unusual dating practices uh, in terms of what they, uh, where they took their girlfriends for date. Now, part of it was quite simple, but they would start by going around and collecting kangaroo poo. You know, those little pellets, right? Work with me. Collecting the kangaroo poo, right, which they would then lovingly dip in chocolate and then pull it out, kind of carefully polish it down so... It was a perfectly spherical chocolate ball. And then they would invite their girlfriends out to the movies. Lovely boys. And as they handed around the box of Maltesers, there was an extra special honeycomb surprise <laughs> on the middle. Apparently they were saying, um, the funniest thing was, he used to see had no part in it, he just watched it. Uh, the funniest thing was, <laughs> one of them took a bite <laughs> And like, wow, that's disgusting. Give me another one. <laughs> uh, went back for seconds, right? What's inside is disgusting. What's on the outside may be beautiful milk chocolate, but the inside is something fundamentally bad for you. Like a whitewashed tomb. Like a religious person who goes around in their clothes and in their attitudes and their social position, but doesn't match up to that with what they are on the inside. And so often what those people do, the actions of hypocrites, 
betrays what they really are. At least normal people, non-religious types, don't pretend. They don't pretend to be higher up the ladder to God. And that's, I think, why we rightly hate hypocrites. Another one I like is um, woe number four, uh, which is the spice rack row. Woe. Whoa. Um, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. All right Now, the rule was, the idea was in Judaism that you tithed, you gave to the, the temple a tenth of your income, your harvest, your crop. No one thought in their right mind that God meant go through your spice rack and cut off a tenth of every leaf of mint and dill and come. And that's just stupid. But the Pharisees were so concerned that they would be high above everybody else that they would put this fence around the law so that they might not even get close to breaking it, that they went the whole hog. And you know what? They took great pride in it. Great pride in it. And Jesus says that would have been fine. A little bit weird, but fine. Except that you forgot the big things. You forgot about justice. You forgot about mercy. You forgot about faith. Don't go picking off a tenth of the leaf of mint if you're devouring widows' houses the very same day. That is hypocrisy. You've forgotten the most important thing. And the motivation, Jesus tells us, is really quite sinister. Verse 5, they do, the Pharisees, the scribes, they do everything to be observed by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honour at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues. That's why Christians don't sit up the front. It's out of respect for this passage. Greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by people. Right? This is it's almost funny, right? Moses tells the Israelites to write these words, the words of the law, God's intention for his communion. Write these words on your hearts. Tie them to your wrist. Inscribe them on your forehead. And they did that, literally. They made a little box and they wrote the law in tiny little print and then put it in a box strapped to their forehead. Now, not only was it something of a fashion error, but they didn't read what was in the box. They didn't read the law. Or they would have known that I don't desire uh, sacrifices, God, I desire mercy. And if you haven't got that, if you haven't got that the reason why I want you to show mercy to the people under you is because I've had mercy on you, then you missed the whole point. Don't come to temple. And offer me sacrifices. That is what Jesus is outraged at. Don't bind the law to your forehead literally and forget to do what it says. That is hypocrisy. They're all show. No substance. It's the outer, not the inner. And that's why Jesus denounces them in the most firm terms passionately because their heart is actually far from God. Far, far from God. 
I said at the start that Jesus hates religious people, hypocritical religion, for better reasons than we do. We hate them because they're hypocrites. And Jesus has a fair swack at them for that. But you know the, the real reason Jesus hates religious hypocrisy? It's that he desperately and deeply cares for everyone, including religious people, including religious hypocrites. And here's the problem with religion. It's not just a particular religion, right? Jesus is not just having a go at Second Temple uh, Judaism or Pharisaism. He's not having an anti-Semitic kind of swab at his own people. He's not even just using a convenient example of a religion around him. His problem is with the very project of religion. The very project of trying to work your way up those rungs to God by superior human effort. These binding standards. You know, uh, I was having a chat to a friend of mine, Victor, who's um, a little bit of a, a nerd about this, this word religion. And we think it comes either from Latin and French. You know what it means? To bind. Because that's what religion does, isn't it? It binds. It binds us to these practices and these ceremonies and these things that we do in an effort to try to somehow impress God and make us good enough for Him to climb that ladder, to ascend to God. And Jesus says in verse 4, well, it just doesn't work. Verse 4, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and they put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. You know, don't often say this. Christopher Hitchens and Jesus are in total uniformity on this point. Total harmony. Religion poisons everything. Everything. You see, religion leads you, I think, inevitably to one or two places. Right? On the one hand, it leads you to this kind of self-righteousness which has to be based on a self-deception. Right? Because if you want to prove that this way of living, this practice of religious stuff works, that you can actually get to God through this meditation, through this religious practice, then you need some people who seem like they're further along that ladder than you. Right? You need some display models in the, in the showroom. Right? You need priests People who are more holy than the rest, who are better at meditating, who are far more consistent in their prayers, who are heaps more righteous, help more old ladies across the street, go to church ten times a day, something to show that if you just try hard enough, you can make it up that ladder. Look at me. Look at me. I'm almost perfect, certainly more perfect than you. For religion to work, for the whole project of religion to work, we need those people who have deceived themselves into thinking that and are proficient at deceiving everybody else into thinking that somehow the priests and the archbishops are better people. Because otherwise, when we realise, as we inevitably will, that the priests and the archbishops 
are just as frail flesh as we are, then it leads us to the other option. I said it goes one of two places, right? Either you have this self-righteous self-deception or you end up in despair. Guilt-wracked despair. Because nobody can be good enough for God. Nobody can, by their own effort, prove themselves as worthy of God's love. You see, even if we manage to compare ourselves to each other and go, oh, I'm kind of better than that over there, or I'm kind of... As soon as we look at Jesus, as soon as we look at God in the flesh, in His supreme holiness, in His unflinching, just justice, in His mercy, in His grace, then we know that we don't stack up to that. I think all of us, if we're honest with each other for a moment, know that we've done stuff which doesn't live up even to our standards. I shamefully confess that the people that I've hurt the most in my life are the people who I've been closest to, who I've tried to love the most. And I can't even do that, let alone love my enemies, as Jesus did. When we look at Jesus, we see a standard. We see a man, we see God so far above us that we know we can't do it. We know it. And the problem with religion is it doesn't lead us to ask for mercy. It leads us to despair. A friend of mine teaches um, scripture and this girl in her scripture class, um, well, they're doing this kind of questionable exercise, rewriting the lyrics to Savage Garden's Affirmation. Now, this is going back a couple of, couple of years. Do you know the song? Uh, I believe in karma, what you get is what you get returned, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, the idea was kind of a good idea. Your own, they're studying worldviews, right? So write your own worldview down to this song. And everyone's kind of furiously writing, you know, I believe that parking meters should be free. I believe that all those kind of things. And eventually it came time to share with the class, right? This is good pedagogy. They, they're looking at their, they're doing their thing and then they're sharing with the class. And they get to this girl and say, would you like to share with the class? And the honest answer was no. Funny. Teenager who doesn't want to share their view of the world. And this person actually said something profound. This, this girl in the scripture class said something I think is profound. As soon as I share this with the rest of my class, then it'll become obvious to them that I don't live up to what I believe. And so better not to share it. Interesting, isn't it? The problem, I think, with religion, with a system of climbing the ladder, climbing the rungs to God, is that we either have to delude ourselves and others into thinking that we're something we're not, or we despair because we're never going to get there. And sadly, many of my friends have given up. It's just too hard. Both types of religion are poisonous. In verse 13, they block entry for people getting the kingdom, people who are trying to get in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You lock up the kingdom of heaven from people, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. The system is great. It just doesn't work. Religion looks great, but at the core, it just doesn't work. And Jesus mourns. He mourns this problem. Verse 37 he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is in the same breath 
as lamenting, as woeing the Pharisees. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. Jesus isn't just having a rant. He doesn't just hate religion for the same reasons we hate religion. He tenderly, that image of a a bird gathering her chicks, wants religious people to repent. And the problem with self-righteous delusion is you don't think you need to repent. You don't think you need a saviour. You think you can do it on your own. And the problem with despair is you don't even bother asking because you don't think there's any hope. What if, what if there was another way? What if there was another way to live? Jesus talks about three ways to live. In Jesus' Gospels, there are three ways to live. One is the normal one you think of, the open rebellion against God, right? These all start with R. It'll be easy to remember for me. Rebellion is kind of the default position where we kind of shove our fists at God in his face and say, we don't need you. And of course, the irony of that is that we do need him. We're breathing his air right now. But if there's not rebellion, then there's another group of people who try this thing called religion. And it doesn't work either. Because if we've seen, it leads just to hypocrisy. So what's the solution? If not rebellion, if not religion... Well, it's simply to acknowledge that we need mercy and repent. And that's my story, friends. That's, that's why I can stand here talking from a book about God and have no fear of the hypocrisy that anyone who knows me here knows that I'm guilty of. I don't live up to Jesus' teaching. And I'm happy to admit that. Because what Jesus is offering is not to do better by your own effort. He's offering mercy. And all we need to do is repent. So will you repent? Will you accept his offer of mercy? I did. And it was the most profoundly liberating thing that I've ever experienced. Why don't we pray? If you feel comfortable, I'm going to pray. Lord God, we desperately want to hear from you. We want to hear words of comfort and words of truth. And I pray that you would convict all of us now of what is true about you and about us and about where we stand. We ask this in Jesus' name.